Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, social media companies take their fight to the U.S. Supreme Court. They're challenging state laws that say what they can take down and who is allowed on their platforms. The companies say the laws violate their First Amendment rights. Arlene Richards reports. Former President Trump's campaign criticizing President Biden for chasing Trump to the border. What we'll see during dueling border visits by Trump and Biden on the same day. And how Border Patrol agents are responding. Iris Tao at the White House. Trump is appealing one of his cases and facing a new gag order in another. The latest in his legal battles and what his lawyers want from Fonnie Willis now. The Israeli military has submitted its plan to evacuate the population of Rafah, home to over a million people in the southern Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, the war with Hezbollah terrorists intensifies as Israeli forces strike deep into Lebanese territory. Jason Perry reports. It's official, Sweden is going to join NATO. Hungary, after a month-long holdup, just approved the bid. Hear what the country's leader had to say about it. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. The Supreme Court hears arguments in a pair of social media cases. Social media companies are suing Texas and Florida over new laws that they say violate their First Amendment rights. We turn now to our legal correspondent Arlene Richards for more details. Laws out of Florida and Texas are limiting what the largest social media companies can take down from their platforms. But tech industry groups immediately challenged the laws, arguing their First Amendment rights were being violated. They say the laws not only tell them what they cannot take down, but they also require them to inform users when they do take something down. And that the provisions of the laws interfere with their right to editorial judgment. The Florida and Texas laws are the first two that are attempting to regulate social media. The laws come in the aftermath of the platforms deleting former President Trump's accounts. The state's governors say the laws correct what they believe is bias against conservative voices. After hearing oral arguments on Monday, the Supreme Court justices must decide if those requirements are constitutional under the First Amendment. Some of the justices expressed concern that the laws were too broad. It seems like your law is covering just about every social media platform on the Internet. But let's look at Etsy. Etsy is a supermarket that wants to sell only vintage clothes. And so it is going to and does limit users' content. It's a free marketplace, it's open to everyone, but it says to the people who come onto its marketplace, we only want this kind of product. But if they're a public marketplace, which they are, they're selling to the public, this law would cover them. I think that's right, Your Honor, but, but let me just say a word about how the law might apply to Etsy. Uh, first of all, it wouldn't regulate the goods Etsy is offering. What our law regulates is the moderation of user-generated content. 
Justices Contangi Brown-Jackson and Clarence Thomas pushed Florida's attorney to narrow down what specifically the law intended to regulate, and they wondered if the powers of the social media platforms would then transfer to the states. It's unclear how the justices may rule, but several justices seem to lean toward finding a narrow resolution to the dispute. Arlene Richards, NTD News. President Biden and former President Trump both heading to the Texas border on Thursday. The competing trips come as record illegal crossings royal the 2024 election. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more at the White House. President Biden will be in Brownsville, Texas to speak with local law enforcement officers and border patrol agents. Meanwhile, on that same exact day, former President Trump will also be in Eagle Pass in Texas, which is about 300 miles away, to give a speech. And the White House says that President Biden's goal here is to again call on congressional Republicans to, quote, stop playing politics and pass the bipartisan border deal that's right now in the Senate, one that President Biden has accused Trump of blocking. Here's what the White House was saying today. Watch. He will reiterate his calls for congressional Republicans to stop playing politics and to provide the funding needed for additional U.S. Border Patrol agents, more asylum officers, fentanyl detection technology, and more. The Monday announcement of Biden's trip comes amid a record number of illegal crossings and as Biden's handling of the border has become one of his worst polling issues. Trump's campaign on Monday derided Biden's trip as chasing us to the border and the Border Patrol Union called Biden's trip too little too late, saying, quote, Biden's going to the border now solely to try to save himself. And Trump was vowed to conduct the largest domestic deportation if he gets back to the White House and said this after winning the GOP primary in South Carolina just this past weekend. Watch. People coming in that we just can't, uh, we can't do this. No country could, could sustain what's happening to the United States of America. No country. So we're going to straighten things out the border. Meanwhile, the last time that President Biden was at the border in El Paso, Texas, back in January 2023, he visited a migrant center there, but did not appear to see any actual migrants. So it remains to be seen if this time around, President Biden will see something different. Reporting from the White House, Iris Howe, NTD News. Former President Trump is appealing his verdict in the New York civil fraud case. His lawyers argue that Judge Arthur Ngoron abused his authority and acted outside of his jurisdiction. Ngoron ruled earlier this month that Trump deceived banks and ordered him to pay $355 million in penalties. That amount has grown to $454 million with interest. If Trump is unsuccessful at the mid-level appeals court, he can still ask the state's highest court to consider taking his case. Also today, Manhattan prosecutors requested a new gag order on Trump. This is for the case where Trump is charged with falsifying business records relating to money he paid to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. Prosecutors want to stop the former president from publicly disparaging participants in the trial. That includes potential witnesses, court staff, and family members of lawyers and staff. Meanwhile, in Georgia, Trump's lawyers want Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis to testify again due to new cell phone data. The data allegedly shows Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade visiting Willis's home multiple times in 2021, including twice late at night. The DA's office says this data doesn't mean the relationship between Willis and Wade began earlier than she said. 
Judge Scott McAfee spoke with Nathan Wade's former attorney and business partner, Terrence Bradley, in a closed-door meeting today. They reportedly discussed Bradley's attorney-client privilege, which he has been using to stay silent about Wade. Both the Senate and House of Representatives returned from recess this week. Lawmakers face a partial government shutdown and an impeachment trial. Our Washington correspondent Luis Martinez helps us unpack this week's busy legislative agenda. All eyes on Congress this week, in particular House Republicans. Even though the House of Representatives does not reconvene until February the 28th, this Wednesday, for Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, the first order of business will be to meet with his fellow congressional leaders at the White House with President Biden. The Big Four, as they call the party leaders of both chambers of Congress, will meet on Tuesday at the request of President Biden. The president, along with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, and House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, are expected to press Speaker Johnson on putting the Senate-approved $95 billion foreign assistance package to a vote on the House floor. On Wednesday, Hunter Biden will testify behind closed doors before the House Oversight and Judiciary Committee as part of the impeachment inquiry against President Joe Biden. After interviewing James Biden last week, the panel will now have the opportunity to depose Hunter Biden. House Republicans will be pressed to produce evidence against the president after longtime FBI informant Alexander Smirnov was indicted for lying to the authorities about Hunter Biden and President Biden's business dealings. It is important to note that the Senate reconvened this Monday, but the House impeachment managers did not present impeachment articles against Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. House Republicans will have to decide when to bring the trial of Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas to the Senate. Once they do, senators will be sworn in as jurors. Last but not least, this Friday is the first government funding deadline. The House of Representatives will have to approve the first four appropriation bills in order to avoid a government shutdown. The funding for the Departments of Agriculture, Veterans Affairs, Energy, Transportation, Housing and Urban Development and other programs account for about 20% of government spending. Five days before a partial government shutdown, there is still no agreement between Republicans and Democrats. The appropriation bills to fund the remaining 80% of the government are due March 8. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Luis Eduardo Martinez, NTD News. A U.S. Air Force member has died after setting himself on fire in protest outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. D.C. Metro Police say on Sunday, Aaron Bushnell poured an unknown liquid on himself and ignited it, yelling, Free Palestine. The 25-year-old from Texas eventually collapsed while police tried to put out the flames with fire extinguishers. Bushnell was taken to the hospital where he later died. In a video obtained by CNN, he had said he would, quote, no longer be complicit in genocide. D.C. police, the Secret Service and the ITF are investigating. Israel Defense Forces have submitted their plan to evacuate the civilian population of Rafah as the IDF plans to battle Hamas terrorists in the southern Gaza city. Israel has received international criticism for planning to conduct operations there, where over half of Gaza's population is now residing. NTD's Jason Perry has the war update. On Monday, the Israeli military submitted its plan to evacuate the civilian population from Rafah, a southern Gaza city that is now home to over a million people. 
Israel has previously warned Hamas that if they do not release the hostages before Ramadan, then Israel will conduct military operations in Rafah during the holy month of fasting, which starts in about two weeks. Israel's war cabinet will now review the evacuation plan. But apparently, not all of Rafah is safe. On Saturday, residents gathered around this building in Rafah that was reportedly hit by an Israeli airstrike. We were sitting peacefully. I was baking and my children were around me. There was nothing and suddenly the house flew. I do not know who was targeted. It hit our neighbors. The IDF on Monday reported killing at least 40 terrorists throughout the Gaza Strip during the previous 24 hours. And on Saturday, the IDF released footage of this terrorist on this rooftop in Khan Yunus before they directed an airstrike at his location. And these terrorists also in Khan Yunus were reportedly part of an anti-tank missile squad. The IDF also reported on Monday using their fighter jets to strike multiple Hezbollah air defense systems deep in Lebanese territory, east of Beirut in the Bekaa Valley. We heard the sound of warplanes. And after that, we heard the strikes that happened. Naturally, as people who live in the village, we went to see the damage. Israel said the strikes were in response to a missile that struck and downed an IDF surveillance drone earlier in the day. A senior Hezbollah politician in Lebanon said Israel's strikes in that area will not remain without a response. And over the weekend, Thousands of Israelis gathered in Tel Aviv and held a vigil for the more than 100 hostages still held in the Gaza Strip. This man commented on the latest ceasefire talks to release the hostages. And hopefully wish to move forward with that in order for us to end the living hell of over 141 days that we've been living, waiting to see any sign of life. And on Monday, Israeli officials traveled to Qatar to continue the negotiations to release the hostages. And if a temporary ceasefire is reached, Israel's defense minister said it would have no impact on their mission to remove Hezbollah terrorists from Israel's northern border with Lebanon. Jason Perry, NTD News. Hungary made a historic move approving Sweden's bid to join NATO today. Here's the Hungarian prime minister. We support that the accession should happen. NATO is a defensive alliance. We make alliances to defend each other in the case of an outside attack. No commitment is more serious than that. The Nordic country remained neutral through two world wars and the Cold War. Sweden's abandoning its non-alignment policy after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Stockholm announced its decision at the same time as Finland, which became a NATO member last year. However, Sweden was kept waiting as Turkey and Hungary raised objections to the bid. Coming up, the former FBI informant charged with lying about the Biden business dealings will remain in jail. Find out more about how his case relates to the House probe into the President Biden. Former President Trump beats Nikki Haley in her home state's primary. Our guest says this shows Republicans overall still want Trump as the nominee. Hear his experience covering the primary election over the weekend. From Big Pharma to Legacy Media, a group of experts at the Capitol sounding the alarm over side effects from the COVID-19 vaccines. That and more when we return.
Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Here's one campaign mystery solved. Political advisor Steve Kramer admitted on Sunday that he was behind the fake phone call mimicking President Biden's voice. The Democratic operative confirmed this after NBC News reported it. In the call, a voice that sounded like the president's urged people not to vote in New Hampshire's Democratic primary, causing uproar among officials and watchdogs. Kramer says he did it to draw attention to the risks of artificial intelligence in politics, likening himself to historical figures like Paul Revere. The political consultant insisted that his actions were not linked to the candidate he was working for, Congressman Dean Phillips. Phillips condemned the call, saying neither he nor his campaign knew of them. A New Orleans magician said last week that Kramer hired him to create the audio for the calls. An FBI informant who was charged with lying about the Biden family business dealings will remain in custody. The man appeared in a federal court in Los Angeles today. Congressman Jim Jordan said last week the indictment doesn't change anything in the Hunter Biden probe. When Christopher Steele lied to the FBI about uh, President Trump, he gets paid more. When Smirnoff lies to the FBI about Smirnoff. President Biden, no, he gets indicted. I mean, go figure. So um, it doesn't change the, the fundamental facts. Alexander Smirnoff was arrested earlier this month. A federal judge in Los Angeles today ruled that he will remain in jail while awaiting trial. This came just days after a different judge in Nevada released him with a GPS monitor. Smirnoff worked as an informant for the FBI beginning in 2010. He claimed that President Biden and his son Hunter Biden received $5 million each in bribes from Ukrainian energy company Burisma. Federal prosecutors working on the Hunter Biden investigation said these are false claims. They also said Smirnov is likely to flee to other countries. Smirnov's allegations played a role in the House impeachment inquiry into Biden. Prosecutors said Smirnov's claims come from people associated with Russian intelligence. Former President Trump beat Nikki Haley by over 20 points in the GOP primary in Haley's home state of South Carolina on Saturday. Joining us now to discuss the primary is Lawrence Wilson, political reporter for the Epoch Times, who was on the ground in South Carolina. Lawrence Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Pleasure to be here. Now, following Nikki Haley's loss of about 20 points to Trump in her home state in South Carolina, the billionaire Koch family's libertarian policy advocacy group Americans for Prosperity Action is pulling back its financial backing of Haley. Now, how do you see, how long do you think her campaign can sustain itself without these deep pocket donors? Well, without big money donors, not long. The question is, are there others besides uh, the, the Koch family who are putting money in? And uh, there have been. Now, uh, the Americans for Prosperity and Action, um, they put in a ton of money, uh, I think some $31 million supporting the Haley campaign. So clearly, that's going to be a huge impact to see that money go away. But Haley has had other billionaire donors who are supporting her uh, in significant amounts, smaller than $31 million a pop. So the question is, how long will they stay with her? Because once the money dries up, any campaign is finished. She said she raised a million dollars after losing uh, on, uh, on Saturday uh, to President Trump. So... Clearly, some people are still funding her campaign. We'll see if it's enough to keep her in, say, past Super Tuesday, which is next week. 
And now you were actually on the ground in South Carolina for the primaries. What were your biggest takeaways of this GOP primary? I think the biggest takeaway was that while Haley did have support in South Carolina, as she did in Iowa and as she did in New Hampshire, Donald Trump has more. Uh, the people uh, broadly in the Republican Party still want Trump to be the nominee. We've seen that now in four primary contests in a row. Haley makes arguments for her in favor of herself versus Donald Trump, that she's younger, more vigorous, that uh, she represents a return to normalcy and away from all the, uh, the legal problems and so many other arguments that she makes. And her supporters buy it. They will repeat them to you if you get them in a conversation. Uh, but Donald Trump's supporters simply do not. The exit polling confirmed that. They believe he's plenty young and healthy to be president. They don't think his legal problems are going to prevent him from running or assuming office. And uh, they're all in on Donald Trump. On that note, what did you make of the sentiment on the ground? If Nikki Haley isn't there for the general election in November, are her voters going to go to Trump, Biden, or just not vote? It's a fascinating question, and some of them that I talked to don't have an answer yet. Now, let me contrast that by saying that when I spoke with DeSantis voters in Iowa, uh, many of them said, yeah, if DeSantis isn't the nominee, I'll go back to Trump. They were former Trump voters who wanted a change, but they would go back if need be. Uh, I hear something different from Haley voters. Many of them will not vote for Trump. A very few said, yes, I guess I would have to vote for Biden, but that's a minority. Uh, more often I heard some version of, I'll just have to make a decision when the time comes. I don't want to vote for Trump. I don't know what I would do in that situation. Hmm, that is quite a difference. Now, RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel announced today that she will step down from her role on March 8th. Now, how could this shake up the 2024 election, especially when it comes to voter turnouts on the Republican side? Will this help or hurt Trump? Well, I think everybody in the Trump organization is hoping it will help. Uh, Trump has recommended Michael Watley, he's the RNC chair in North Carolina, to take over for Ronald McDaniel. And he has recommended Laura Trump, his daughter-in-law, to be co-chair. And Laura Trump has said if uh, she's in that position, she will mount, quote, the largest legal ballot harvesting operation, uh, and I forget the rest, in the history of the world or the, something like that, uh, superlative language to say she's going to do everything she can to get the votes in for Donald Trump. Now, just for people who aren't aware, ballot harvesting is the process, legal in some states but not others, where you can collect absentee ballots from other voters and return them to a polling place. So it's useful for uh, people who are shut in or not able to travel or find it difficult to get for the, to the polls. Republicans usually hate this. They claim it's a ripe opportunity for voter fraud, but Laura Trump says we're going to embrace that. If it's legal, we'll do it. We're going to get the vote out for Donald Trump. That's fascinating because we've seen that on the Democratic side and even people like Megyn Kelly saying the Republicans should use it too if it is you know, legal in these cases. Lawrence Wilson, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure.
After a ruling on embryos from the Alabama Supreme Court, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has echoed former President Trump's stance. The court ruled this month that frozen embryos are children under state law. The ruling means clinics that discard embryos could be held liable for wrongful deaths. Several clinics in the state have paused in vitro fertilization treatments, or IVF, following the court's decision. The IVF process is a way of giving life uh, to even more babies. Uh, and so what, what I think the goal is, uh, is to, to make sure uh, that we can find a pathway uh, to ensure that parents who otherwise may not have the opportunity to have a child will be able to have access to the IVF process and become parents and give life to babies. On Friday, Trump wrote on Truth Social, urging Alabama to protect IVF treatments. Critics say the ruling could make access to IVF treatments much more complicated and potential legal liabilities for clinics could drive up the costs of IVF services. From federal health agencies to the pharmaceutical companies on Capitol Hill today, an expert panel sat down with Senator Ron Johnson to discuss what panelists call a lack of transparency during the COVID-19 pandemic. NTD's Sam Wong has the story. True scientific inquiry starts with skepticism challenging what we think we know, but might not be so. For over two years, Senator Ron Johnson has been pressuring federal health agencies to release more information regarding the COVID-19 vaccines, more specifically, cases of adverse reactions that follow the injections. In a Monday hearing, Johnson said his efforts in demanding transparencies were met with roadblocks and that many of his requests were either delayed or flat out ignored. They're stonewalling me for literally years some very obvious and legitimate questions. It just makes you very suspicious when a federal health agency that should be completely transparent is instead completely opaque. According to Johnson, American health agencies aren't the only ones that are complicit. The Wisconsin lawmaker added that some members of Congress also contributed to the cause. They've got to understand that things like vaccine injuries are real, and they can't shy away from the fact that they, they also recommend this to their constituents. Former Canadian member of provincial parliament, Randy Hillier, also attended the panel. He told me that certain prominent members of society reaped a great deal of benefits from the COVID-19 lockdown. There's been great gobs and gobs of money taken from the public, taken from the, uh, the lower and the middle classes, and enriched uh, the few and the elite. Dr. Brett Weinstein is an evolutionary biologist and host of the Dark Horse podcast. He told me that the failure of U.S. public health agencies reveals a larger pattern. There's a failure across the West. Every single entity that might ordinarily seek truth has been turned into a, an absurd, upside-down version of itself. People are correctly detecting that when they follow the advice that they're given or what they're assured is true, that they end up harming themselves. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Sam Wong, NTD News. Coming up, reactions pouring in over the murder of Georgia nursing student Lincoln Riley. Our guest says crimes committed by illegal immigrants are not anomalies. And a 41-year-old man caught insider trading after eavesdropping on his wife's phone calls. He now faces up to five years in prison, a huge fine and divorce. Details on that and more when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. 
The Supreme Court heard oral arguments in two cases involving content moderation on social media platforms. Tech industry groups sued Texas and Florida over their new laws regulating what the platforms can ban. The companies argued that the laws violate their First Amendment rights. President Biden and former President Trump are both planning to visit the southern border on Thursday. Biden will meet with border agents and law enforcement at Brownsville, Texas, while Trump will speak at Eagle Pass, Texas. Trump is appealing his $355 million verdict in the New York civil fraud case. At the same time, Manhattan prosecutors requested a new gag order on Trump in the hush money case. Hungary's parliament voted to ratify Sweden's bid to join NATO after withholding it for over a year. This clears the last hurdle for Sweden to join the military alliance and abandon two centuries of neutrality. Former President Trump is speaking out over the murder of Georgia student Lakin Riley by an illegal immigrant. In a truth social post, Trump blamed President Biden's border policies for the murder. Trump also said he will launch a large deportation of illegal criminals once he's back in the White House. Joining us now to discuss the murder is Terry Schilling, president of American Principles Project. Terry Schilling, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Now, break down for us this suspect's past run-ins with law enforcement and why he wasn't deported. Uh, well, it's unclear just to the extent uh, that he had committed several crimes, but he had been uh, arrested by New York City uh, police. And the real problem is that the state of New York has what's called a sanctuary city law, uh, which means that the local officials, local law enforcement is barred from cooperating and sending these types of migrants or illegal immigrants uh, to federal officials. And so typically how this process works is uh, once detained or once arrested, they will send the information to ICE and then ICE can decide if they want to deport them or not. If they do, they then give a detainment order. Well, in this situation, the New York City police did not hold uh, Ibarra long enough to for ICE to give the detainment order. But even if the ICE had given the detainment order, uh, they still would not have cooperated because they are legally barred from doing so. This is a nightmare, and it is all created because of these sanctuary city laws. Oh, wow. Now, NGOs and advocacy groups have come out and said, oh, this is an anomaly, these types of cases. But is this an anomaly, or what is the scope of illegal immigrants staying in the country after these encounters with law enforcement? Well, before this interview, I was brushing up and I actually have found that this is not an anomaly whatsoever. As in 2018, there was research that came out that showed that 64% of federal arrests, now this is not local arrests, this is arrests from federal law enforcement agencies, 64% were of uh, arrests were illegal immigrants. And that is a really shocking number because uh, illegal immigrants only make up 7% of the U.S. population. This is not an anomaly. This is a pattern, and it's not just a pattern. It is a pandemic. Oh, wow. And now your organization actually lobbies for pro-family uh, policies. Now, how are families feeling about this illegal immigration crisis? Are they afraid for their families, for their children? 
Well, they've been afraid for their families and children for a while, right? The, the, the crime that we have seen from illegal immigration over just the past decade and a half have been incredibly high. Uh, but stories like this that are so egregious, this this happened, this, this assault and this murder happened in the middle of the day. Right? This is not at night in some shady part of town. This is in the middle of the day, broad daylight. And so I think what American families are most worried about right now is that the criminals in this country are emboldened. They aren't afraid of law enforcement because of policies like the sanctuary city laws. And we're, we're not going to see really any progress until we start to crack down and get rid of those laws. Now, given that this is an election year, how do you see that concern translating at the ballot box? Will it motivate families especially to go out and vote? This is this issue of illegal immigration and the, the rampant crime and violence that's being committed against Americans is already becoming a major campaign issue. Uh, in fact, it's becoming such an issue for voters that even Joe Biden is trying to figure out how to implement some of, some of Donald Trump's immigration policies that were blocked by federal courts when Donald Trump was in office. Um, and on top of that, you are seeing Democrats introduce legislation that would actually do nothing to address the crime and the issue that's being caused by this, but it allows them to rhetorically shift the debate in the mainstream press and blame all the Republicans for opposing this legislation. So it's it's already a major issue, and and uh, I think that I'm I'm very optimistic that the American people will see through it. They know who will crack down on immigration, and they know who won't. Terry Schilling, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. NTD's Chris Spears hit the streets of Midtown Manhattan for the reaction to this crime that many say could have been avoided. It's a preventable tra tragedy, you know. It's just the laws are in place. We have the, the possibility to easily crack down on the border to regulate it, but we don't. It doesn't take more money. It takes will. I mean, I feel like people that do have the right to the American dream, but also we got the right to be safe in our own country. And stuff like that will be going on if the government paid more attention to public safety. You know, maybe the first time he should have been deported in New York when he was released. So I think that's kind of the main, main failure right there. So violating laws at that time, you know, why, why was he here? Uh, my reaction is to ask, why do we start talking about this with the premise, the Venezuelan guy? That's a trending topic today, Venezuelans and migrants making a mess over here. And I think there are a lot of people, there are good people, there are bad people, there are white people that are good, there are white people that are bad. And I know Venezuelans, my friends, that, that they are good people, but I know another ones that do that kind of stuff. So I think we shouldn't be generalizing. Unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, obviously he shouldn't have been released multiple times. Clearly some type of problem there. So, I mean, my reaction is, you know, um, it's terrible crime regardless. Illegal citizen, you know, when those things kind of happen, regardless of your stature or political affiliation, I feel like you should be tried to the uh, highest extent of the law, especially when a minor is involved. Tragic. That shouldn't happen to anybody. But the fact that he's a migrant, I don't think has anything to do with this. I just think it's unfair to the people that work and live here and pay taxes and then have to deal with things like that with people that get aid from the city and the government and uh, you know they come here illegally I know that they're some of them are seeking asylum and I understand that but it's just not fair to the people that work hard and pay their taxes 
A BP executive's husband caught insider trading by secretly listening to her phone calls, leading to a possible five years in jail, a huge fine, and divorce. Entity's Virginia Gibson has more. A BP executive's husband confesses to insider trading. 41-year-old Tyler Loudon admits he secretly listened in on his wife's phone calls and profited by $1.8 million, making trades off of the insider information. In this case was above and beyond uh, what we typically see because of the amount of money that was traded. We typically don't hear about many of the day-to-day -day insider trading cases because the amounts trading are quite small. John George Aras is a partner at Grancy Hollenbeck. He's represented numerous individuals who've been investigated for insider trading. Aras says insider trading is when someone learns important information about a company, information the rest of the public does not have. Then he or she trades stock based on that information. Insider trading hurts investor confidence and can harm the financial markets. This is why the SEC cracks down on it hard. There's really a few key items that come up that lead to the SEC targeting someone. The first is the person never had the stock before. Two, it's done shortly before the announcement of a merger or acquisition. And then the third and final component is that individual then sells the stock. Those three factors allow the SEC to then send a subpoena requesting information. Tyler Loudon had secretly listened to his wife talking about BP's potential acquisition of Travel Centers of America, a truck stop operator. Loudon then sold all the positions in his brokerage account and Roth IRA to buy thousands of Travel Center shares. He has agreed to surrender his $1.8 million in illegal profits and faces a fine of up to $250,000 and up to five years in prison. BP has fired his wife, and they are now going through a divorce. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Still to come, farmers setting tires on fire in Brussels as EU officials meet to address their concerns. More on the latest of many protests by farmers across Europe. And in college basketball, a player injured Saturday as excited fans stormed the court in celebration. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss who's at fault when we return. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Farmer protests escalating in Brussels today as European Union agricultural ministers meet to rule on new measures. This echoes tensions at the Paris Agricultural Fair this weekend. Farmers battling with police forced the French president to cancel his plans to visit. Entity's France correspondent David Vives has the story. Brussels is now the leader's battleground for farmer protests in Europe. Today, columns of tractors clogging the road from the EU district to central Brussels. Farmers took to the streets, dumping tires and setting them ablaze just a short distance from where EU agricultural ministers were scheduled to meet. The ministers were to discuss new proposals addressing farmers' demands, including a reduction in farm inspections and the potential exemption of small farms from certain environmental standards. Protesters say the EU isn't addressing their demands in order for them to see a profit make a living out of our work. We produce the food and we don't make a living. Why is so? Because of free trade agreements, because of deregulation, because the prices are below cost of production. 
These protests follow weeks of unrest across several EU member states, from France, Germany, Spain, Greece, Poland. We are in the red and we can't take it anymore. Every day we see farms liquidating and we can't take it anymore. They are killing our French agriculture. Protests reignited this week ahead of the Paris Farm Show, a significant event attracting around 600,000 visitors over nine days. 300 farmers forced their way into the agricultural fair, confronting police to call out the French president as he intended to tour the fair. Macron cancelled plans to tour the fair and hold a debate due to the protests where eight police officers were injured. French media outlets are calling the conditions a disaster. The agriculture fair is a milestone for farmers' unions who expect the government to deliver on promises and provide more help. While some farmers are still blocking roads and highways across the country, many of them say they can't leave their fields as the work there needs to be done. So the future of this protest, which started as a grassroots movement, is still hard to predict. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. In some lighter news, audiences are dazzled by a classical Chinese dance. Xinyan Performing Arts took to the stage at the Detroit Opera House in Detroit, Michigan this weekend. Shenyin Performing Arts graced the stage at the Detroit Opera House in Detroit, Michigan over the weekend. Audience members were highly impressed with Shenyin's artistry. The performance is exquisite. It is majestic, it's beautiful, the dance is outstanding, the voices are wonderful, they are so entertaining and authentic, it's absolutely exquisite. The interaction between the dancers, the music, and the screen in the background, how it all ties together with such precision, it really is, uh, the best way to describe it is precision. It's, it's beauty and splendor all in one. Theatergoers applauded Shenyin's mission to revive 5,000 years of traditional Chinese culture and values and took note of a deeper message. Very hopeful. That's, that's what I would say. It was a message of hope and a message of restitution. Keep it going because otherwise communist China would probably erase it. So um, it's imperative that they keep the history going and let the rest of the world realize there was something before communist China. Bringing the message out there and keep on doing the great job they're doing. They're just phenomenal. They're extraordinary. Shenyin will be performing at the Adler Theater in Davenport, Iowa on February 27th. NTD News, Detroit, Michigan. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, plenty of sports to discuss. Let's start in baseball as spring training has already begun, yet there are several all-star free agents still unsigned. Is this a little unusual? You know, for baseball, it's actually not. I mean, baseball's free agency, it's a total free market. There's no restrictions on how much teams can spend or how much players can make. Plus, individual team revenues really differ greatly depending on their local TV deal. Now, they do not share revenue like the NFL does. So really, only about a third to maybe half the teams really spend a lot of money on players. I mean, Tampa Bay is probably the low end. They have like usually a $50 million payroll. Meanwhile, on the other end, the New York Mets were somewhere in the neighborhood of $350 to $400 million last year. That's a huge disparity. Now, just yesterday, though, former MVP Cody Bellinger signed an $80 million deal with the Cubs. But as you said, there's still several all-star players out there still unsigned. They might just continue to hold, hold out to see if some team gets really desperate uh, enough to reach their price. But they've got about a month before the season starts. If baseball has more of a free market when it comes to free agents, how does that compare to the NFL or even the NBA? 
You know, much different. The NFL is a lot more level playing field. You know, the league splits their TV revenue, as I just said. They mainly have national TV deals, you know, billion-dollar TV deals, I might say. Plus, every team has a hard spending limit, also known as salary cap. So when there's free agency, you know, players and agents, they know who has money to spend and relatively how much. So their free agency usually moves pretty quickly. Now, in the NBA, they have what salary cap is called a soft salary cap. You can go over it, but you'll be taxed on how much money you do, which is actually what baseball does. But also in the NBA, there's maximums on how much money players can make, plus how long contracts can run. So when players hit free agency, like these all-star caliber players, they might have the same maximum deal offer from a number of teams, and it's just a matter of where they actually want to sign. Now, these rules really come down to the players' unions. In baseball, the players' union is a very uh, strong union. They've got the upper hand, like in labor negotiations. Whereas the NFL and the NBA, the, the owners really have the upper hand. But, um, yeah, it's been like that for a long time in baseball, actually. In golf news, John Rahm, who recently defected from the PGA Tour to Live Golf, was pretty candid about leaving for money reasons. How much more money is he making? You know, he hasn't actually confirmed. It's believed to be somewhere from 300 to 500 million. I mean, that's been the reported price. But that's just his signing bonus. You know, these Live events, they each have a $25 million total purse. That's more than any PGA Tour event. Plus in the PGA, there's a weekend cut you have to make just to get paid for participating. Meaning after the first two rounds, only the players with the top 65 scores continue to play the third and fourth rounds. The others, usually maybe, I don't know, 35, 40 more players, they go home with nothing. Now live golf, there's no weekend cut. Everyone gets paid and they get paid handsomely. Now to compare that to his PGA earnings, John Rahm, who ranked third in the world, very successful. He made just over $50 million in his seven years there. So it's really quite a dis disparity between the two leagues. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.